Today, we are discussing interprofessional and multidisciplinary pain management. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic REMS program companies, also provided by the Clinical Care Options and in partnership with the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Practicing Clinicians Exchange, and ProCE. Today, our faculty includes myself, Amanda Zimmerman. I'm a physician assistant, West Forsyth Pain Management in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We're also joined by Samantha Catanzano, PharmD. Dr. Catanzano, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thanks, Mandy. I'm Samantha Catanzano. I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin College of Pharmacy and board-certified psychiatric pharmacist at UT Health Austin. We also have Dr. Andrew Friedman. Would you like to introduce yourself, Dr. Friedman? Yes, thanks. Uh, I'm Andrew Friedman. I'm a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist and pain management specialist at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. So let's jump into our objectives. Today, they include to identify the roles of various practitioners in the multidisciplinary management of pain. We're going to choose strategies for opioid dose adjustment, particularly as it relates to acute situations involving multidisciplinary care in chronic pain patients. So the first case I'm going to present, today we're gonna talk about a 52-year-old male with a relevant medical history of type two diabetes with an A1C of around 12, bipolar disorder, lumbar degenerative disc disease, status post lumbar laminectomy, and chronic lower back pain. The lower back pain has been controlled with exercise and oxycodone 10 milligram three times daily for the past five years, which is prescribed by a pain specialist. This patient sustains a fall and suffers an acute left rotator cuff tear. His pain is reported at seven over 10, described as constant ache with sudden sharp pain on extension. The patient is guarding the extremity on exam. He has been evaluated by orthopedic surgery and was not recommended for surgical intervention secondary to a poorly controlled glucose. So in this patient, he requires multidisciplinary care. This is not really an appropriate situation to increase his opioid or give him more opioid medication. So he's going to require a team of providers to give him the best outcome possibility. So that would include a physical therapist, of course, uh, for range of motion exercises to avoid a frozen shoulder, strengthening of the joint, and movement techniques to avoid further injury and anything else they deem appropriate. Behavioral therapy, he does suffer from bipolar disorder, so this acute injury may exacerbate his emotional issues. So we need to focus on his anxiety and depression, treatment options for bipolar disorder, provide him some coping mechanisms, and assess to see if cognitive behavioral therapy might be appropriate. Acupuncture might be a good option for this patient, and of course, he's going to continue with his pain specialist where he could possibly have a joint injection, possibly with uh, PRP. We probably wouldn't want to give him steroids because of the poorly controlled glucose. He may benefit from a TENS unit, possible opioid therapy, if no contraindications, but in this case, probably uh, not a good idea. Topical anti-inflammatory treatment might be an option for him as well. So uh, Dr. Catanzano, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on this case? Well, first and foremost, I would probably have some questions regarding, is there still a potential option for surgery in the future? And then if so, from a pharmacist perspective, what we, what we may be able to do in terms of collaborating with primary care to try to focus on optimizing glucose management. And then in terms of thinking about the management of mood disorder symptoms, 
making sure that we're considering potential treatment options that one could potentially benefit pain symptoms, but are also going to be unlikely to worsen um, poor uh, diabetes control at the moment. So those are kind of my two top concerns going on in my head right now. I agree. What about you, Dr. Friedman? I I agree with Dr. Catanzano, and um, I have several patients with really uncontrolled diabetes who are awaiting surgery. And to me, this is a bit of a red flag that does you know, talk about risk because um, this is a, an A1C that's so far out of control that you wonder about the patient's compliance with his medical care. And, and I do think in this acute rotator cuff tear setting, surgery might give him the best outcome. And so really intense work with his primary care doctor, as well as the rest of the team, I think is very important in this case. And I think that that, uh, you know, uncontrolled glucose, as well as some of the other features, do suggest he's a higher risk patient for the escalation of his opioids. Agreed. And I think, you know, we need, he needs sort of a tight reining in with all this, all the disciplines. He is definitely a patient who might have issues with compliance. So we would need to be sure that everybody was in good communication so that we could keep him in good compliance with the treatment plan. So next, we're going to have uh, Dr. Friedman. <laughs> um, so my case is a 39-year-old woman who I've actually followed for 15 years, and she initially presented with a Bartolotti syndrome uh, that was causing severe low back pain. She was quite disabled by it. Um, she did well with the institution of opioids, and uh, we actually uh, escalated her dose to a pretty high dose, but that was done very carefully uh, with a multidisciplinary team and with the input of her family. And she'd done well for many years. Um, she subsequently had a diagnosis of Bayset syndrome because of uh, a long history of steroid use started to lose her teeth. And so she had to go through really extensive uh, dental surgery. We did that while she was still on her oxycodone and in fact, bumped her dose up a little bit to help her cope with that. But her pain was really poorly controlled. And so um, as she has more of this um, dental work to do, she's starting to recognize that being on opioids at these doses for years has probably reduced her pain control. And we talked about the fact that reducing her opioid dose might give her better pain control with her subsequent uh, procedures that are planned. And so this is a person who has a, she's very compliant with her regimen, but has a very uh, perfectionistic personality. And so it's very hard for her to reduce her daily dosing at all. I don't think it's a substance use disorder, but it's really based on her self-control and uh, how she uses the medicine typically. So what we decided to do with her was to uh, put her onto buprenorphine and uh, reduce her dose in that fashion. And um, she's a person who we had talked about sending to inpatient detox to do that. Um, She had done that once uh, a long time ago and had been successful, but it's very disruptive. She's a single mom. Uh, She's got a very busy job. And so she didn't really wanna go uh, inpatient. What we decided to do was to put her on a microinduction uh, plan with sublingual buprenorphine, which is something that's pretty new to us and probably for most of the people uh, participating in this uh, activity. So with this patient, uh, we decided to pursue an outpatient transition to buprenorphine, and uh, we decided to do that through a microinduction plan. Uh, as many know, the typical way that we've done buprenorphine induction is to withdraw all of the opioid agonists and wait until significant withdrawal begins and then begin typically sublingual buprenorphine. In uh, this patient's case, she was anxious about that and we'd been uh, studying this microinduction plan and decided to proceed with that as a mechanism to reduce her dose 
significantly. Um, we really had a plan of reducing her dose to about 50% of her baseline dose because that's been shown in other settings to improve perioperative outcomes, primarily in the uh, total joint literature. And uh, what's important here is to understand that uh, once uh, the buprenorphine dose is at about 24 milligrams per day, that confers about 100% occupancy of the opioid receptors. When people have a uh, precipitated withdrawal because they've started buprenorphine too quickly, it's because uh, the buprenorphine replaces the typical opioid agonist at the receptor. And if that happens all at once, then withdrawal can occur. And similarly to when one might use a buprenorphine transdermal patch, for example, the slow introduction of buprenorphine brings that opioid agonist slowly enough off of the receptors that withdrawal doesn't typically occur. And with this patient, uh, this was a very successful approach. So would recommend uh, looking into this for some of your patients. I think it's uh, something very promising for the future. So let's discuss. Dr. Catanzano, um, are you familiar with this uh, microinduction strategy? And I am. Yeah, so we've um, actually had really good success with using microinduction for patients who were previously on opioids to rotate them over to buprenorphine as well. We've even had some success cases with patients who were also supplementing with kratom use rather than opioids to address some of their pain and have had similar results there. Um, we've used methods using both the sublingual um, film as well as using patches and then transitioning over to the sublingual films. And I feel a very similar situation has happened with our patients in terms of there's a lot of participatory kind of anxiety around what is going to happen whenever I reduce my opioid dose and kind of around the experience of withdrawal, especially if they've had previous trials of buprenorphine in the past and have done that more traditional type of induction where they've had to go through a certain period of time of experiencing that discomfort. And I agree that this is slowly starting to become a little bit more acknowledged in practice. Um, and hopefully it will take a little bit uh, more time for providers to feel comfortable utilizing this. Obviously, with some of the DEA regulations around buprenorphine prescribing, depending on the patient population, there's some restrictions there, but very safe and well tolerable um, in most patients. Thanks. Mandy, do you have comments on this? I do. I find this, I find this very interesting. Um, I'm not familiar with microinduction strategies. However, I, in my practice, have been transitioning people to buprenorphine from high-dose opioid therapy. Uh, not buprenorphine naloxone combo, but I've been using buprenorphine buckle film and buprenorphine primarily and have had a lot of success. I actually did a retrospective analysis and published it about transitioning these high-dose people. And when I did the analysis, I found that pretty much on average, I got them down to equal to or less than 150 morphine equivalent per day and was able to just transition them directly to buprenorphine buckle film without, you know, this sort of doing that, this micro dosing, you know, my higher dose people who I sort of knocked down, uh, you know, wean them down on their opioid to transition them. I did provide them a little bit of clonidine if they needed it for the transition, but I had a lot of success and, and I, I tracked the pain scores as well and found that the pain scores either improved or stayed the same in that group. So I, I did about 275 patients were in the cohort. So really interesting topic. And I think that, you know, this is the future and we're going to have a lot of success with it. But like you say, you really have to get the patient on board because they are, they do have a lot of anxiety surrounding this transition. 
yeah, we, we have a team of uh, nurses and pharmacists that help these patients. And I think very frequent contact in, in this patient's case, daily contact was very helpful. And our experience is the same. Uh, people who've been on high dose opioids and transitioned to buprenorphine, many of them say, wow, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Other people are a little dissatisfied that they don't get greater pain relief, but um, in papers that I've seen, uh, pain relief does seem to improve in these situations with that transition. Yeah, I think it's excellent. I, I really, I've had a lot of success with them. It's also a great opportunity for that interprofessional care, especially if you do have nurses and pharmacists who can help provide that frequent contact. I know in our clinic, daily visits to our practice site is sometimes very challenging for patients. And so if you're able to have other methods of contact and be able to capitalize on patient support systems at home, then that can help minimize some of the transportation barriers that sometimes these induction phases have for patients if they have to come into the clinic every single day. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. We uh, have, like all of us, been doing much more telemedicine lately. And we have on our team um, psychologists as well, um, who are often very difficult for patients in you know, remote areas of our state to access. And now using these video platforms, we've had much better ability to help those patients. And so that's often part of what we do for patients who are in transition phases like this as well. Uh, in the development of this microinduction plan for our patient, we relied heavily on our clinical pharmacists and we use clinical pharmacists all the time in uh, chronic opioid therapy. They help us to be uh, adherent to the regulations and they add a second perspective uh, that I think is really valuable for prescribing physicians. And Dr. Catanzano, are you a clinical pharmacist and do you prescribe? Yeah, so this is a very unique area for many pharmacists to start practicing in, and it's still something that's not widespread. And I practice in Texas, and so we have different rules and regulations than some other states, but there are many clinical pharmacists, many of which are psychiatric pharmacists who do prescribe under collaborative practice agreements and can carry a DEA license in certain states so that they can also prescribe controlled substances and really assist in buprenorphine prescribing or pain management in collaboration with other providers, such as physicians in a variety of different clinical settings. So it's certainly something that has that is gaining more traction um, and can definitely just expand access for patients on these types of multidisciplinary teams. Interesting case, Dr. Friedman. So we're going to go on to Dr. Catanzano now with her case. Yeah, so this particular patient is an older adult, a 62-year-old female. Uh, relevant past medical history includes GERD, hypertension that's relatively well-controlled, also has a long-standing history of depression dating back to teenage, young adult years, history of PTSD also occurring around the same time, kind of childhood, teenage, young adult years. Has a history of alcohol use disorder, though this patient has been in remission for the past 30 years and has chosen abstinence as their primary goal. Um, they do have also some insomnia symptoms, so disrupted sleep pattern overall with both difficulty with sleep onset as well as sleep maintenance. And whenever this patient was evaluated and kind of providing history of their pain symptoms, they reported that several years ago, they had an instance where they were caring for someone else and kind of fell and twisted their back differently and felt some pain and was told by another provider that they had a slip disc. Although most of the history around that particular incidence is really unknown to us. And so when they presented, they were um, largely reporting this constant lumbar pain, bilateral weakness, as well as numbness in the lower extremities. 
reported some like diffuse cramping that occurred at night. They are on methocarbamol 750 milligrams three times daily, and this was prescribed by an external provider. Also reporting some tightness in the cervical spine, which they report worsens with just prolonged positioning. Um, and then other notable medications to be aware of, this patient is currently on duloxetine 20 milligrams per day, has not tried higher doses, and has not been on any other antidepressant treatment that they can recall in the past. Other past pain medications that they can recall include um, morphine, unknown dose or duration, but reports that it was helpful, and then did have a trial of gabapentin, similar situation, unable to recall dose, duration, reports a bad reaction, but can't really provide any details surrounding what that reaction is, doesn't appear to be anaphylactic or a serious dermatological reaction based on additional questions. No history of physical therapy as well, largely due to issues with just insurance and financial coverage. So my questions for our team here today, I'm curious your thoughts in terms of other non-opioid medication options that may be tried or what your thoughts are about the current medication regimen? And then would you potentially consider an opioid medication in this patient if non-opioid options didn't help with pain control? Hey, I'll jump in first if that's okay. My first question with this is, um, you know, good management always begins with a clear diagnosis when possible. Uh, and in this case, with the numbness and weakness in the bilateral lower extremities, that sounds concerning for possibly, you know, a large lumbar disc. So certainly would start with uh, evaluating what's going on there. And uh, if this is bilateral radiculopathy without progressive motor weakness, then things like epidural steroid injection could be quite helpful. I do think that uh, for the axial pain in particular, incrementing the dose of uh, duloxetine could be quite helpful. Our, my experience is that uh, people tend to get their maximum benefit at about 60 milligrams, although the dosing range goes up to 120. Um, I've been disappointed in trying to get better pain control going from 60 to 120 usually. And then in terms of opioids, I think this is an extremely high risk patient for having problems with that. PTSD seems to be one of the features that really perpetuates opioid use. And if you look at chronic pain populations, the um, prevalence of PTSD is much higher than other diagnoses. And her history of, of course, uh, substance use disorder uh, raises her risk as well. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I would agree, especially with the duloxetine attempting to really maximize that definitely getting up to 60 milligrams. And I think a good sweet spot that we've seen as well tends to be between 60 to 90. Few cases do we find pushing all the way up to 120 provides you know, significant relief in pain symptoms compared to what they were experiencing on 60 or 90 milligrams. Mandy, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Dr. Friedman. The first thing I thought of was procedural intervention. Um, certainly, further imaging studies, uh, you know, further evaluation, physical exam to evaluate whether this might be a surgical uh, issue, but certainly procedural intervention would be something that I would jump to first. You know, in terms of her medications, I think definitely the, the duloxetine, maximizing that, also possibly some topical, you know, maybe a lidocaine patch or something like that might help that back pain. Topical NSAIDs possibly would help a little bit, not really with her leg pain. You know, gabapentinoids are sort of a mixed bag at the moment. There's some data to suggest that there's a little bit more danger there than we initially suspected. And also in terms of abuse with gabapentinoids, you know, there's some literature there. So I think I might be cautious there with that with this patient. However, she is high risk because of the PTSD and the history of alcohol abuse. 
but I find it interesting that she's been on opioids before and apparently did not develop a problem with the opioid in the past. So I think a psychological evaluation would be in order to uh, get their input in terms of possibly considering opioid therapy and, and having her in continued psychological treatment for the PTSD and possibly, you know, considering cognitive behavioral therapy, things like that. But I, I think that overall, I, you know, she is a bit high risk, but I think you could work through it. Yeah, I feel like there's so many different steps requiring a trial before considering opioid therapy in this particular patient. And I appreciate the conversation about the risk because it is a definite risk having that history, um, as well as comorbid mental health disorders that are not well controlled. So definitely trying to get them engaged with psychiatry and behavioral health would be ideal. And I think some of our conversations around if an opioid was necessary in the future, utilizing a partial agonist like buprenorphine may be the first initial choice, even though traditionally, usually full opioid agonists are recommended as initial options. But given those risks, buprenorphine may pose less of a risk long term. And if a full opioid was needed, then perhaps utilizing lower doses as well as briefer refills. And so not providing a full month supply, but doing just like one or two weeks at a time with that frequent check-in if it got to that point. But I think utilizing behavioral health, maybe seeing if physical therapy may also play a role as well if they're able to now would be helpful for this particular patient. So today's key takeaways include to remind patients that participation in all aspects of care will optimize recovery and outcomes. We talked about that a lot today uh, with these cases and the importance of multidisciplinary care in these types of patients. Providers need to be aware of all parts of the care plan and communicate with their plan of care with other providers. This is key to uh, success for the patient's care plan. All disciplines along with the patient should share a common goal that is well orchestrated. This should be something you should go over with the patient at every visit, reminding them because Sometimes this can be very confusing for patients and they forget or they don't understand the full goal of everything. Optimally, all disciplines would be part of a shared practice in the optimal situation, for sure. <laughs> Clinical pharmacists can play a very important role in management of opioids and can carry their own DEA certificate and can prescribe. This is important to remember because this member of your team can really have a, a large impact. Telemedicine platforms can greatly improve access, for example, to pain support and CBT groups, particularly in remote areas. So we want to thank you for joining us today.